Well, dear sisters and brothers in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus the Christ. Well, again, we have Jesus starting a fire. In chapter 16, at the very beginning, we move from having a conversation with the disciples and the larger crowds that we had in 15 to now, he's, he's talking specifically to the Pharisees who have come, well, to sneer at him, to torment him, to be a thorn in his flesh, to be in argument with them. And so, he gives them a word at the beginning of 16, that Pharisees are in love with their money and with their lifestyle. And then there's some pushback, and then we get to this story. So it's important to remember that Jesus is not teaching doctrine. He's not making a theological argument. He's using a parable. And parables primarily had one purpose. They were supposed to punch you in the gut. Well, that gets done. He tells a story crafted finally to get his point across. And so I think we should perhaps pay some attention to it. What kind of fire is Jesus lighting for us on this Sunday? He's not talking about wealth being the problem, but how it's used and what it's utilized for. That's the problem. Pharisees, he says, were in love with their money, their acquisition of it, the accumulation of it. And so he tells this story. Now he tells it in a way that the crowd that is there, the Pharisees that are there that are listening, would have got it in an instant. For us, some of it just slides right over. In the first century, if you had purple clothing, my wife's favorite color, by the way, you knew, and along with everyone else, that you were fabulously wealthy. Truthfully, normally only kings and queens had enough money to be able to afford purple clothing. It was unbelievably expensive. So for this man, a rich man, to be wearing purple is a sign that they all would have gotten that he is a billionaire. He is unbelievably wealthy. And furthermore, he is eating sumptuously every day. Every evening meal is a feast, a banquet. Well, we got that covered. Now, you need to remember that in the world that they were living in, that's a sure and certain sign that God loves you and cares about you and that you are a righteous person. That if you're that wealthy, it's a sign that, well, that you're actually a really good church-going person. On the other hand, we have Lazarus, and he is so weak and beside himself that in the Greek, he's actually thrown at Lazarus' door, or at the rich man's door, excuse me. He can't even crawl there on his own. Someone's thrown him there. Someone's deposited him at the doorway. He is so weak that he can't drive the dogs off that are coming to lick his sores. He is as out as you can get. And of course, everyone would have known in the telling of this story that this is obviously a sign that he is a sinful man or he comes from a sinful family and that here is the punishment now that has arrived within him for his deeds, well earned. And that all the bad of his life 
is deserved. But that's not how the story turns, is it? Because death arrives at both of these men's doorstep. And now things begin to change pretty dramatically. Lazarus is carried by angels to the bosom of Abraham, there to lie in comfort, to be comforted. Well, what happens with the rich man? He's just buried and finds himself in Hades. And then we have these lovely dialogues about, now I need some help, because clearly he had used his riches to surround himself to become self-righteous, to think of himself as a person who needed nothing because he had everything. So now I just need a little bit of water on the tip of my tongue, and if you could just send that one who just moments ago was on the outside, if you could send that one to comfort me, that would be great. And Abraham, who recognizes him, calls him child, says, no, that's not possible. Well, then send him back at least for my brothers. Warn my brothers so that this fate does not befall them. And then here's those hard words. No, they won't even believe anyone that it comes back from the dead. If they haven't believed Moses or the prophets, then, then there is just, well, there's no hope for them. What is the sin of the rich man? I don't believe it's his wealth. What, what earns him a place in Hades? Well, for, for me, as I've thought about this over the decades, as I've lived a life, to me, the sin of the rich man is that he just simply cannot see Lazarus. Even when I was a boy and I heard this sermon preached for the first time, I always envisioned the rich man either stepping, literally stepping over Lazarus on the way into his home or utterly ignoring him as he moved in and out of his house. That there's simply no recognition whatsoever of his humanity, of his need, of him at all. He simply is unseen. The sin of the rich man is he's blind. Can't see the human being at his doorstep. And what I find amazing about the story is now he can see him, right, in Hades. He can see him far, far away. Now I can see him. I could use a little help myself. Couldn't see him when he was literally at his door. When we live in a world where we start putting people into that category or those people, it's a pretty small stroll to finding no humanity in them at all, of not being able to see them. Furthermore, it's a pretty short stroll when we start thinking of ourselves in the world that we live in, that we're pretty doggone self-sufficient. We live in the richest nation in the world. Even at a certain level, our poor people have more money and more wherewithal than most of the world around us. How do we use our wealth? How do we use our life living inside that gift? How do we see the humanity of our sisters and brothers? Well, we've got all kinds of bad examples, but on this Sunday, I thought I would share a good one. If you haven't figured out by now, I love history. 
And one of the great gifts of being a pastor of the church and a bishop for the 12 years that I was one is you get invited into things that you never expected. And that life pops up in a way and you get to see it up close and you see how history impacts our lives yet today. So about halfway through my years of being bishop, I was invited by a really good friend of mine who's Jewish to come to a celebration of the 75th anniversary of the Danish people rescuing and saving their Jews that lived among them. In April of 1940, the war arrived on Denmark's doorstep. And there was a brief minor skirmish and the king and the parliament decided that they would not fight because there was no way they could win. And so they literally invited the German army into their country. And it became a model over the next two years of being occupied in a way that was pretty beneficial to everyone. The Gestapo didn't work very much and there was really no pogroms, there was no arresting of people. People kind of continued on with their life. But there were people in Berlin that were demanding that the Jewish problem in Denmark had to be addressed. And at the beginning of the war, there's approximately 8,000 Jews living amongst this incredibly Lutheran country. And there was any number of countries where this had not gone the way I'm going to tell it. But as they moved into 43, word comes down now that the Jews are all going to be rounded up in one night. They're going to arrest everyone. And the Gestapo was moving in, and the arrest is planned for. But the man that's in charge of it, the German who's in charge of it, gets word to the chief rabbi and to the Lutheran bishops that are in that country. And within a day or two, they make plans for all the Jews to go into hiding. And they're invited into their neighbor's house or out into their woods or into their fishing boats. And clearly, you cannot keep them. Over time, they're all going to get caught. So preparations are made and politics is happening like it should. And there's a demand from the king to the king in Sweden that they receive their Jews. And finally, he publicly announces on the radio that they will receive them. And over about a two-week time period, this month, all of them, or almost all of them, are boated across to Sweden. Some in kayaks, some in rowboats, some in fishing trawlers, but about 7,600 Jews are sent across to freedom. Even the 200 that were arrested are still fought for by the parliament, by the government of Denmark. They never, they never stopped fighting for their people. This was a systemic seeing of the one lying at their door. They refused to give up on their citizens because they saw the humanity in them. Even though they worshiped God differently, even though they dressed differently, they were still seen as part of their community and they refused to let them go. My favorite part of this story, the war gets over. They're invited to come back and people return. And they discovered that their neighbors had been mowing their lawns, tending to their houses. When they arrived back, found the cupboards full of food. These people that could have been sent to their death like they were in any number of other countries in Europe during this time period, 
had been seen, had been cared for, and their lives had been rescued. To me, that's the flip side of this story. When we as a Christian people, if we think of ourselves as a Christian community, who are we stepping over or who better are we seeing and stepping into their lives? How are we inviting them into a place that's better? How do we live out the promise that is Jesus Christ in our world today? How do we avoid the rich man's problem of using our wealth to just make our life better and to make no one else's life better? How do we hear the gift that is Christ that comes to us daily of new life in him so that we know that we've already, we've already died the only death that happened in our baptism and the death that will come later on in our life simply doesn't matter because Christ is hanging on to us. How do we then give our life away in service to others? How do we as a community see the people around us? In a few months, about 10,000 Ukrainians are gonna come to South Dakota. That's what we've been told. And we've been receiving refugees, by the way, for about 75 years in South Dakota. How are we going to receive them? How are we going to welcome them? Or will we just simply step over them because we can't see their humanity? To me, this, this is a text, this is a, a passage that always comes right at me and makes me con contemplate my life and how I'm living it and how I'm using it, how I'm using my wealth and the gifts that I have. Do I make the world better? Do I see and give as a gift Jesus Christ to the world? Amen.